Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Faith Life Study Bible is a free app, and it's for iPhone, it's for Android. Uh, there may even be a, a web app of some kind. I'm not sure about that. You can actually even buy a print version of this Bible. You see where it says get the print edition. But the app is totally free. Uh, it's totally free. And so the link for that now I'm going to uh, post in the comments as well. And I recommend getting Faith Life Study Bible. If you just get into your app store on your um, uh, respective device and search for Faith Life Study Bible, it'll, it'll come up. And essentially what it is, is it's um, it's got a, a free translation, modern translation of the Bible called the Lexham English Bible, which is made by Lagos, the people that make this software. They make very powerful Bible study software, and it's a very good translation. Free translation that comes with it, and also a free set of notes. So just like any other study Bible that you would buy, you've probably seen a study Bible. They're really thick. They're usually hardback. Up at the top, you have like the Bible text, and then you got this many footnotes down at the bottom, and you'll have pictures and maps and little sidebar studies and timelines and this kind of stuff. Faith Life Study Bible has all of those things because it's digital. It's constantly kept up to date. There's videos. There's lots of cross-references and linking back and forth and jumping from reference to reference. It's just really powerful, and it's totally free, and it's not really hard to figure out how to use if you're worried about that. It's basically, it's got two panels with the scrolling Bible in one panel and the scrolling notes that go right along with it in the other panel. And I, I use it all the time. Uh, even tonight, when I had a question about something that I was reading, I went right. The first place I went, Faith Life Study Bible, looked at the notes. Oh, it made complete sense of the thing that I was scratching my head over. And uh, I'll even point that out tonight. So I wanted to make sure that you had a link to Faith Life Study Bible because it's free. You should have it. If you're reading the Bible without it, um, it's, you're just kind of, you might be kind of flying blind. It's not that you, not that the Bible isn't enough, but there are a lot of things about the Bible culturally, translation wise. Um, sometimes the Bible is referencing other things. And if we don't know that, we don't understand what it's talking about. It's a free resource like Faith Life Study Bible that can clear up those questions very quickly. Why wouldn't you have it? Seems like something that you would definitely, definitely want to have. So I've got that link there in the comments for you. So we're going to just jump right in and read the text. 
Um, I'll just do a very quick review first. So we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We have Hannah's prayer. Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. Uh, he does and she does. And Samuel's dedicated to the Lord and ends up growing up to become Israel's first real prophet, like capital P, prophet. The Ark of the Covenant is sent into battle. It's lost to the Philistines. Eli, who was priest at the time, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also serving as priests, they all die. The Ark is taken away. Samuel now is judged and priest as well over Israel. And uh, the Ark is lost to the Philistines for a while. Uh, the Philistines become afraid of the power of the Ark and they return it. They send it back toward Israel. And through a series of events, it ends up in uh, the house of a man named Eleazar. It's in his guest room in Kiriath Jerem. And these are not Israelites down there. These are um, Gibeonites and they are uh, water bearers and woodcutters for Israel based on a a treaty that was made back in the book of Joshua. And so it's not even really in Israel. It's just kind of hanging out down in Kiriath Jerem, sort of in Israel's land, but not really officially in Israel. And uh, the scripture tells us it it's, hangs out there for 20 years. Well, during this time, Israel asks for a king. And in doing so, they're rejecting God as their king. They want the king to, to serve over them and to judge them, and they're thereby rejecting Samuel as a judge. And God says, you know, let them have one anyway. So God anoints Saul as king. And so far, it appears to be a model king of Israel. He's tall, strong, handsome. He defeats Nahash, uh, whose name means serpent. So in the minds of the Israelites that do remember a little bit of scripture, they remember this promise back in Genesis about uh, a descendant of Adam crushing the serpent's head. And they say, oh, here's the serpent and Saul's defeated him. So this is fulfilling of, of scripture. And yet we see a lot of foreshadowing that's, that Saul is uh, weak and uh, lacks faith. And uh, last night we looked at Samuel's farewell address in chapter 4. So now we're in chapters 13 and 14, and we're going to get right into the scripture and read. So let's go back to our browser here. And 1 Samuel chapter 13. So your Bible probably has like this, these pericope headings. So a pericope is just a section. It's kind of like a chunk of paragraphs. That's a story that all goes together. Uh, apparently it's a really snooty word to use. And um, I don't care. I use it anyway. But uh, so these headings are called pericope headings. And m many Bibles have them. And honestly, I don't like them. First of all, they're not part of the original Bible. So someone that's not familiar with the Bible might not understand the difference between that heading and the actual text. Uh, secondly, like this one, kind of gives away what's going to happen. But oh well, there it is. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So 
uh, Gilgal, sort of where Saul has set up. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken away. It was residing in Shiloh. It was there for 369 years. And then uh, when it was ripped out of the tabernacle, uh, probably Shiloh was destroyed in those same wars back in chapter four. And so there really is no central uh, place. Uh, Samuel's been operating out of Ramah because that's sort of where he's from. And Saul seems to be operating his things out of Gilgal. So there's really no, there's no capital of Israel at this time. Verse five, the Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So a lot of, a lot of fear, retreating, running away. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. So in case you're not following here, Samuel has said, I'll be there in seven days. Seven days kind of come and go. Samuel hasn't shown up yet. The troops are starting to desert. Saul gets nervous. And so he does the offering himself. Saul is not the priest. Samuel is the priest. Samuel is the one who should be making the offering to the Lord, not Saul. Saul has taken matters into his own hands. Verse 10. Just as he finished with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, What have you done? Saul answered, When I saw the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, The Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I, I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Now, notice here, Samuel was already saying someone else has been appointed. We don't know who that is yet. We're about to find out in a few chapters, but we don't know who that is yet. Uh, this is something that will uh, be revealed to us in time. So Samuel is possibly saying this out of faith at this, at this moment. Because if Saul will not lead them, someone must. He knows the Lord will provide someone. Verse 15. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah in, in Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. Saul, his son Jonathan, and the troops who were with them were staying in uh, Geba of Benjamin, and the Philistines were camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three divisions. One division headed toward the Ophrah Road, leading to the land of Shual. The next division headed toward the Beth Horon Road. And the last division headed down the border road that looks out over the Zeboim Valley toward the wilderness. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all the Israelites went to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks and one-third of a shekel for pitchforks and axes and for putting a point on a cattle prod. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. 
My brother, by the way, has a great lesson about this particular piece of scripture, how we find ourselves unprepared. We find ourselves with no blacksmith in Israel. Um, maybe we'll get him to join us sometime and give us that lesson. Uh, verse 23. Now a Philistine garrison took control of the path of the pass at Michmash. Going on to chapter 14. On that same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migran on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. So again, you'll remember Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. When Phinehas dies, we learn that he is married because we find Eli has a daughter-in-law and she is in the middle of giving birth. She dies giving birth to Ichabod. And now we see that Ichabod has a brother, presumably an older brother. And so uh, Ahitub is apparently serving as, uh, as priest alongside Saul. So I'm not sure really where this fits in with um, how what his relationship is with Samuel. It certainly seems the line of Eli should have been long gone out of being in charge of anything. And here we find Ahitub now in charge of some kind of worship. He's the one wearing the ephod. If you recall, the ephod is a garment that the priests wore. It's uh, referred to back in Exodus. Bezalel and Aholiab, in the same way that they make the Ark of the Covenant, in the same way that they uh, construct the tabernacle, they also sew all of the clothing. And the ephod was a piece of clothing, kind of like a bib, and it had jewels in it. Each one uh, had 12 jewels, one jewel for each of the tribes of uh, uh, tribes of Jacob, tribes of Israel. So he's wearing this ephod. In other words, he's acting as the priest, whether he's blessed by God as the priest or not, he's acting as one because he's wearing the ephod. Uh, going on here at the end of verse three, but the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. So Saul is just hanging out with his troops and this priest kind of doing nothing. Sounds like Jonathan wants to get about it. So he's, he's headed out with his uh, armor bearer. Verse four, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozaz, the other Sine. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and one uh, and the other to the south in front of Geba. So these names, Bozaz and Sine, they, they're just referring to the names of the cliffs. So <clears throat> we had some little small uh, formations like this on our family farm. We used to call them the fox dens. We'd go up and play in the fox dens. And there were plenty of rocks up in the woods where the rock was split apart. And so you would have, uh, the rock would be split apart. And so you'd have sort of a wall of rock here and a wall of rock here. And if you were tiny, cause these were kind of small, if you were tiny, you could get down in between the rocks and you could sneak around and play. And whenever we'd go visit the farm, me and my friends, we like, used to go up there and play GI Joe and all kinds of other things down inside these rocks. And you could jump up and climb down. And uh, it was a lot of fun and you could hide down there too. You could jump down there. So we already know a lot of Israel's kind of hiding in caves and all this stuff. If you go to the place where this is happening, and I've been uh, somewhere around where this, where this is happening, what you see is a larger version of that. So um, bigger than the Fox Dens, way smaller than the Grand Canyon, but sort of the same idea. You've got sort of stone rock cliffs on either side, and they're just sort of layered and tiered, but there's kind of sheer walls. But then down at the bottom, you could crawl down to the bottom and travel down and not be seen by people up top. So this is a way that Jonathan and his armor bearer are sneaking around uh, so as not to be seen until they want to be seen. Verse 
So there, uh, one of these is named Bozes, one is Sanaa, one, one is uh, on the north side in front of Michmash, the others at the south in front of Geba. Basically, it's right in between the two camps of the Israelites and the Philistines. Going on, verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. We see very early on with Jonathan's first lines of dialogue here, if you'll remember from previous series, the first lines of dialogue of a character tell you a lot about them. And what we see with Jonathan is that he is active and that he has a lot of faith in his God. And he's always seeking what God wants to do. And so what happens next is right in keeping with that. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. So they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes they've been hiding in. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. So we've seen a sign kind of already like this in Samuel when the Philistines sent the ark out on the cart, right? What they did was they had the, the milk cows separated from their calves and they said, if the cows go towards Israel and don't come back to their calves as a milk cows want to do, a mother cow is want to do. If they go the opposite direction of what they ought to do, then we'll know that's a sign from the Lord, that this was from the Lord. Jonathan does the same thing. Hey, if we're able to scale up to where they are, where they have the upper hand and still take them, we'll know that that's a sign from the Lord. And that's what happens. They take uh, 20 men in this half acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. Because they realized someone from our side has gone over there and is stirring, stirring the pot. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God for it was with the Israelites at that time. Okay, this was the thing that got me scratching my head. He calls for the ark. And it says, because it was with the Israelites at that time. I'm like, well, wait a minute. It was in Kiriath-Jerim. They're not really Israelites. I mean, I guess you could kind of say it was, but certainly it's not with them at Gilgal. How can they call for it? So I go to Faith Life Study Bible. The very first thing it says is in the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek version of what we call the Old Testament. It's what Paul and Jesus would have used as their Bible, the Greek Bible. Um, it translates the word ephod, not ark. And so a lot of more modern translations will translate this ephod because that's believed to be probably the more accurate original text. So a lot of your English translations that you'll use NIV, King James, NASB, ESV, even here with the Christian Standard Bible, the translated ark. But a lot of them will also have footnotes that say uh, other manuscripts say ephod. Uh, Robert Alter's translation uses the word ephod. 
if it makes a lot more sense. First of all, I just want to show you real quick by looking at the keynote uh, how uh, may maybe just a simple scribal error as the different manuscripts were done could be made. You see how visually similar the word for ark and ephod are, particularly those of us that don't know Hebrew. Um, so you'll see there's some, some similar figures going on there. So it could be possibly just from a scribal error that could have made that change. Uh, but just story-wise, it makes more sense because what did they spend time telling you at the beginning? That there is this priest person there and he's wearing the ephod. Uh, Henrik Ibsen, who was a playwright, said, if you see the gun on the wall in Act 1, it'll be fired in Act 3, right? And so that's you see that kind of happening here. He's wearing the ephod at the beginning of the story. The reason you're told that is because the ephod is going to come into play. And so that's what's happening here. So even though the English text, a lot of them use the word Ark because some manuscripts say Ark, the oldest and more reliable manuscripts probably said ephod. And so we're going to go with that. Also makes much more sense with the story. So once again, uh, a kind of a head scratcher solved very quickly through the free resource of the Faith Life Study Bible. So I'll read verse 18 again, and I'll use the word uh, ephod. I'll give the alternate translation. By the way, there's a little uh, footnote here, and notice it says, the Septuagint reads, bring the ephod, for he wore the ephod before Israel. So you should always read your, your footnotes when you're uh, checking out your, your English Bible. Saul told Ahijah, bring the ephod, for he was wearing the ephod before the Israelites at that time. When Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone out earlier to the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Notice it's the Lord who saves Israel that day, not Saul and his army. Saul seems to be faltering around between uh, who to ask of the Lord, what to do, and um, all those sorts of things. Uh, immediately following this, the battle extended beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went into the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of the staff he was carrying and dipped it into the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, Your father made the troops solemnly swear the man who eats food today is cursed. And the troops were exhausted. Jonathan replied, My father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Aijalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with the blood still in it. Which, if you'll recall back from uh, Exodus and Leviticus, eating meat with the blood still in it, big no-no for a Jew. Some reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. Saul said, you have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once. He then said, go among the troops and say to them, let each man bring me his ox or his sheep, do the slaughtering here, and then you can eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. 
Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Don't let even one remain. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. But the priest said, let's approach God here. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Saul said, all you leaders of the troops come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. As surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son, Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. So Saul has inquired of God, will we be able to beat the Philistines? And God gives no answer. And so Saul knows that it's because someone in the camp has sinned. And so he's going to find out who it is. So he said to all Israel, verse 40, you will be on one side and I and my son Jonathan will be on the other. And the troops replied, do whatever you want. So Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the unrighteous is in me or in my son Jonathan, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the fault is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. So we don't really know about the Urim and the Thummim, what that is, but it seemed to be two stones that were in the ephod. So this is why it's important that the priest wears the ephod, because not only does it have the small jewels on the front that represent the tribes of Israel, but apparently it had these two stones inside that were the, the Urim and the Thummim. Are we not really sure how they operated? Uh, it seems that maybe one was light and one was dark. It seems that they were somehow tossed kind of like dice or something like that. And somehow uh, it's kind of like casting lots, uh, sort of letting things fall to chance, sort of drawing straws. It's that kind of thing. It's a way of going before God and saying, hey, God, is it A or is it B? If it's A, let it be the Urim, and if it's B, let it be the Thummim, and then you do whatever you do with those, and whichever one wins, then you go, oh, okay, well, that's what the Lord wants us to do. So lots of times you'll see shorthand where they go before the Lord and they ask, and the Lord tells them which way to go, but maybe it doesn't even give some dialogue from the Lord. It's probably because they are consulting the Urim and the Thummim as a way of divining what it is that the Lord wants to wants, wants them to do. And so that's what you see them doing here with the Urim and the Thummim. That's what that means. So that's as much as I can tell you uh, about that. Jonathan and Saul were selected and the troops were cleared of the charge. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son. And Jonathan was selected. Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan said, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. I'm ready to die. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. So Saul's ready to do it. Saul's ready to kill him. Verse 45, but the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines, and the Philistines returned to their own territory. And then the last few verses here are just some information about Saul and his uh, army, some of his generals and things like that. Okay. So. Lots of battle, lots of exciting things happening here. Let's look at a few notes and then we'll be done tonight. So Saul really has kind of made three mistakes here. He's uh, made a mistake in 13 in trying to serve in place of the priest, taking matters into his own hands when it comes to worship. He uh, really falters on whether or not to talk to God or to just rush into battle when he is leading his men. And then he's really unable to go to war against the Philistines because he's made this rash oath with his men that has caused everything to sort of go into disarray. And by taking matters into his own hands, particularly in that first instance in um, 
offering the offering himself. He's now disqualified himself as king, even though he continues to serve in that capacity. So he he's he's sinned really in the Holy of Holies. He's sinned in the temple courts with his own people, and he's been defiant in the world in the battles that he's going on. We see this uh, pattern of sin happening all throughout the Bible, right from Genesis chapter 3, with the sin in the garden, and they're cast out of Eden in the land, and they're cast out into the world where sin continues to grow as Cain and his lineage do what they do. And so we see Saul doing that same thing. He's impatient in the Holy of Holies. He's impatient in the temple courts, and he's impatient. He's defiant in the world. Impatient, rash, defiant. He's got an impatience with God, and that impatience with God will lead us to rash decisions in our own lives, and that causes us often to sin against others. So in one instance, we look at this and we see that this is a special circumstance because Saul is the king. He's the leader of the people. And like other instances we've looked at with Nadab and Abihu and with Moses and Aaron, not following the Lord's you know, uh, letter to uh, when it comes to worship, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to purity, is a big deal for those leaders because they are setting the example for everyone else. They are teaching everyone else how to behave. They are teaching everyone else who God is. They are teaching everyone else what it means to be holy, to live righteous, what is sacred, and uh, what can be done uh, rashly and these kinds of things. So the same is true with us. If we have the Spirit, if we are following Christ, then we are setting an example for the rest of the world. We are in this position where people look to us to know who God is, who Jesus is. You know, I think it was uh, Gandhi that says, you know, I like your Jesus very much, but I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. You know, he was able to recognize the difference, but many people do not study about Christ. They don't know the difference. And so they only look at us. And the only thing they know about Jesus, the only thing they know about God is from looking at us. How often has our impatience cause us to look to some substance, some person, rather than to our Lord, making rash decisions about what we'll put in our bodies or what we'll put in our eyes, what we'll give our hearts to and our purity to. Uh, the impatience leads to rash selfishness, which breeds in us lying and stealing from our families, treating people like objects to be manipulated or gossiped about or used for our own comfort or pleasure, like physical or emotional ATMs. We just keep withdrawing from them until they are hurt, spent, scarred, and damaged. And we so damage our witness to the world that people will say things to us like, why would I want to follow Jesus? So I can be miserable and greedy and angry like you. Well, I can do that and sleep in on Sunday. And all because we couldn't wait on the Lord. Now I don't speak to, to I don't speak to you as someone who has mastered waiting on the Lord. I do not wait well. Very bad at it. This is one of my worst qualities. I speak to you as someone who knows all too well the chain of sin and sadness and anger and hurt and disappointment that comes from taking matters into my own hands and being impatient. But I want you to remember that it was in the waiting that Israel made the golden calf. So remember that you should not be waiting to graduate, waiting on that job, waiting on a raise, waiting to retire, waiting on a spouse, waiting on a vaccine, waiting on that dream, waiting for a sign. You are to be waiting on the Lord. 
a person who is pursuing God's heart, a person after God's heart, waits on the Lord, trusts him with everything, including his timing. Saul was rejected by the Lord and a new king was already chosen, Samuel says in faith. And that king, we know who that's going to be, don't we? That man, after God's own heart, he penned these lyrics in Psalm 62. I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. So many enemies against one man, all of them trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They plan to topple me from my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me in their hearts. Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. That is the attitude. Those are the words of someone who waits on the Lord. So how do we do that? What does this look like practically? Well, the book of James, I think, gives us something that we can understand very practically. So let's go to James chapter one. This is from the New Century Version. James says, my brothers and sisters, when you have many kinds of troubles, you should be full of joy because you know that these troubles test your faith and this will give you patience. Let your patience show itself perfectly in what you do. Then you will be perfect and complete and will have everything you need. So I've always seen this kind of like this. I've imagined a patience as like a tool in a toolbox, right? So I've got this struggle or this trial or this trouble, and I deal with this trouble, and I wait patiently through this trouble, and I pursue the Lord. What's the Lord's heart here? I inquire of the Lord. I wait on the Lord. And in doing so, I, I build up a patience, the same way you build up a muscle with resistance, right? And I build up a patience. This is the patience about mm, dealing with difficult people. I, I learn that patience. I earn it. And I, I put it in my toolbox. Hey, this is the patience about uh, dealing with not getting paid when I think I ought to get paid. That's a patience. And I if I deal with it well, then I earn that patience and I put it in my toolbox, in all troubles we deal with, we build a patience and we put those in our toolbox. Then when another difficult person comes along, I have just the tool for that. And I pull out that patience and I show my patience. I show that I trust in God uh, with difficult people. Or I show that I, I trust in God when money is not what I think it ought to be. Uh, whatever the trouble is, whether it's in your, your marriage or with your children or with your neighbor or um, with a family member that hurt you a long time ago, whatever it is, when you have this patience, when you trust in the Lord, you build that up. And look at what John, uh, James says about uh, what happens. Verse four, let your patience show itself perfectly in what you do. Then you will be perfect and complete and have everything you need. That word perfect doesn't mean you will be flawless. 
Okay, it's not what it means. Uh, when you see the word perfect in the New Testament, generally what it means is not missing anything. So when you see the word perfect in the Bible, that's probably the first meaning you should think of. Not a flawless version of something, but something that isn't missing anything. So in the Old Testament, if it said her teeth were perfect, that meant she had all of them. <laughs> all right. It doesn't mean that they were all perfectly aligned and perfectly white and those kinds of things. It just meant they were complete. You had everything. And so you see this translation really drawing that out. You're perfect. You're complete. You have everything you need. And so the lesson that we can take from this is not to be impatient, not to act rashly, but to wait on the Lord, because we never know what the Lord is up to. There's not many people outside my family that I would call a hero, but Ravi Zacharias is one. He's a hero of faith for me. I mentioned him a couple of nights ago in one of these lessons, and you may have seen by now, Ravi passed away this morning. He was 74 years old. And after a brief, aggressive battle with cancer, passed away surrounded by family this morning. A great light has gone out in the world, but he's left thousands of torches behind in his stead. And um, I've learned so much from him. And a lot of the teaching that I'm able to give you here is because Ravi taught me how to think, how to read scripture, how to make an argument. But most importantly, he taught me how to be loving with people while I'm doing it. Uh, just a few weeks ago, my friend Timothy gave me a copy of Ravi's newest book called The Logic of God. It's 52 Christian Essentials for the Heart and Mind. The idea is that you'd read one a week, and over the course of a year, you would learn to better defend the faith that you believe in and the God that loves you. And just to show you what Ravi's heart is, I'm just going to read the very first part of the first one. Something that Ravi said a lot, and one of the most important things that I learned from him. Week one is called Behind Every Question. Here's the first paragraph. We are living in an era when apologetics is indispensable. Apologetics is the defense of what you believe. We are living in an era when apologetics is indispensable, but at the same time, we need a Christian apologetic that is not merely heard. It must also be seen. The field of apologetics deals with the hard questions posed to the Christian faith. Having, bad, uh, having had deep questions myself, I listen carefully to the questions raised. I always bear in mind that behind every question is a questioner. The convergence of intellectual and existential, existential struggles drives a person to a brutal honesty in the questions he or she has. Makes me emotional to read this paragraph because I saw that over and over again in Brother Robbie, that whenever anyone would ask him a question, they would ask him, they would come at him angry sometimes. They would come at him total atheist trying to catch him in a logic problem of some kind. And he never answered their question. Instead, he ministered to the questioner. He saw someone that had painful struggles, they had painful problems that had led them to the place where they had these brutal questions. And more than wanting to answer their question, he wanted them to come to know the Lord that loved them. And then he answered them from that love. It was a very beautiful thing to witness. So when it comes to the idea of waiting on the Lord, when it comes to the idea of dealing with struggle or with pain and with trying to figure out what it is that the Lord is doing, this clip 
that was also sent to me by my friend Timothy earlier this morning of Ravi Zacharias answering with that very question, I think is a great way for us to wrap up this evening. On the problem of evil, problem yeah. of suffering, mm-hmm. a secular philosopher describes it this way. So the Christians believe God is all powerful. Yes. The Christians believe God is all loving. The Christians know there is suffering. This is a trilemma because it is incongruous. How can an all-powerful and an all-loving God sit back and watch such evil and suffering going on? So he calls it a trilemma. I respond very quickly by saying, why is it a trilemma? Because it's also true that God is all-wise. Mm-hmm. We don't end our theology with God is all-powerful, all-loving, and evil exists. We also believe God is all-wise. And we further believe that God is eternal. You bring just those two elements into the, into the equation and it changes the paradigm. We know God is all-knowing. And then you take the issue of time. What happens over a period of time? Let me give you a quick example of this. When I was growing up in India, I was a constant failure, repeated failure because I never applied myself. And then all of a sudden I passed in very high honors and the ability to join the Indian Air Force. Out of 300, they were going to select 10. I came in at number three. So I sit down in front of this Churchillian looking wing commander and he stares at me across the table and he's asking me a few questions. And then he leans over and in Hindi, he says, beta. Beta means son. Hmm. He said, beta, you're a good man. You're a nice man, but I'm going to reject you. Just like that. And I, I visibly felt my body start to tremble. He said, this job is about killing and psychologically you are not equipped to kill. It was a few months after that, the opportunity came to migrate to Canada. If I'd been accepted into the Indian Air Force, I was committing for about 20 years. Hmm. I would never have come here. Never would have had the time to sense the call for God into ministry. Never have seen the life that God has now given to me to be a persuader and uh, help people understand the beauty of the gospel message. That door was slammed. It took years to find out why that door was slammed. There are emotionally satisfying answers as time goes by. I've lived with a lot of pain with a broken back. I have two titanium rods that are about eight inches long, four clamps, eight screws bolting me down. I injured my back very badly. There were times I'd be sitting in the front seat or the car pulling over my fame and I had on my steering wheel and crying. The pain was so intense. And you know what I found? How much it has taught me to depend on him every day to sustain me. There are two things I need with this lifestyle, a strong back and strong vocal cords, and I have neither. And God has shown me that in my weakness has manifested his strength and how his healing hand even came through on my back after years and years of suffering. There is an emotional satisfaction when I know that there is a cross, there is a hill called Calvary, there is a suffering savior, there is a relationship where he gives me comfort. God does not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquers through it. He conquers through evil and pain and suffering and makes you the person he intended you to be through that. Mm. 
Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.